Hey, this is Drew. The episode you're about to listen to is an interview with the Reverend Jay Mills, a retired Episcopal priest out of North Carolina, about a recent article he wrote for the Living Church titled There and Back Again, Historical Critical Skepticism and Renewed Faith. I encourage listeners to go and read that article at some point. It has more details than what we get into in the episode about Jay's journey. Uh, but his journey was from a cradle Episcopalian uh, to coming of age in the late 60s and witnessing the countercultural and rock and roll and free love movements that were in full swing then. Uh, his return to faith uh, through Campus Crusade for Christ and his time in the early 70s where he was swept up into the Jesus movement, the movement that was recently covered in the movie Jesus Revolution. And then uh, his years as a theology student and seminarian where he encountered the historical critical method of teaching the Bible when that approach to biblical studies was perhaps at its peak, at least in American seminaries and divinity schools. And then finally, how he went from embracing that approach to the Bible and being a skeptic of things like the historicity of events as described in the Bible, especially the Old Testament, uh, to his return to the belief of the Bible as authoritative and taking the biblical text at face value again. I won't spoil the article. I encourage you to read it on your own. Again, the title is there and back again, Historical Critical Skepticism and Renewed Faith. Also in the episode, we get into some fun discussion toward the end about music. Jay, being of a generation that saw revolution in music, shared a bit about his favorite artists. And our episode will start after this brief ad. We hope you enjoy. Hello, and thank you for tuning in to Doth Protest Too Much, a podcast on Reformation, theology, and history. This is Drew speaking, and joining me today is James and our special guest, Jay Mills, uh, the Reverend Jay Mills. Uh, he is a retired priest in the Episcopal Church, serves part-time currently at St. Margaret's Episcopal Church in Waxhaw, North Carolina. Uh, he's been ordained since 1980, and uh, he, he wrote an article uh, in Living Church called There and Back Again, Historical Critical Skepticism and Renewed Faith, which I read uh, maybe probably shortly after it was published, and and uh, res a lot of it resonated with me, uh, and a lot of it resonated with James, so we invited Jay um, on the show, and so we thank you, Jay, for being here. Thank uh, you. And uh, for our listeners, of course, if you are listening to us through Spotify or Apple Podcasts or however you listen to us, make sure to go and give us a rating, five stars, one star, however you honestly feel. We 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 love to get feedback. So, um, so Jay, uh, you know, uh, I don't know if you've written for Living Church before. I, I really enjoyed that article um, and was just curious because it had a little bit of your bio on there and of course the article itself as we'll get into parts of it was a bit biographical anyways talked about your your journey um 
really as a, a scholar priest, someone who's always been interested in the Bible, the behind the scenes of the Bible, the, the, his, the scholarly study of the Bible. Um, uh, and these are all indeed fascinating things. This podcast is, you know, it's, I guess it's technically more of a historical theology podcast, but uh, you, you wouldn't be the first guest we've had on, though, to, to talk really about Bible. And, and so um, I'm, I'm looking forward to this episode. So um, I just wanted to ask you, I guess, um, give us uh, the in the article, you mentioned how uh, you, you eventually found your way into the Episcopal Church. Um, uh, you, well, you you had, I think, some uh, you've had a since very younger years, you've had a history with the Episcopal Church, but you kind of drift in and out. And um, of course, you're you kind of lived through a time that James and I wouldn't know about kind of the the the. Uh, I guess would it be the flower, the flower power, the 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 uh, the the you know the um, the hippie days, I guess. <laughs> From what? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Well, it I, as you mentioned, I was baptized Episcopal to nominal Episcopal parents. Um, was was a, a acolyte. I would only go to the eight o'clock church, so they'd let me acolyte the eight o'clock church, and um, but came increasingly convinced that the church was just uh, uh, an uh, anachronism and and really was not interested and it's coincided with me starting to take drugs at 13 and um, somewhere around 16 I left the church for the movements that were going on in this in the late 60s and early 70s mm -hmm. and um, I remember pumping gas in my car across the street from my home parish and thinking Jesus must have been an incredible guy, but I can't think of any reason for the church to exist. And I never went back again until after my conversion, except for Easter and Christmas to, to suit my mother. Mm -hmm. And um, if I wanted to eat dinner, I had to go to church um, and um, became hopelessly enmeshed in the drugs and alcohol and sex and all the stuff that went on in the 60s and early 70s. And people, young people always tell me they wish they'd been back there because the music was so great, which is true. But it, it was a it was a tough time. There was a war on. Um, there was just a whole lot going on. And, and, the, and the, the drugs were just out of control. Um, and um, I was in Western University chasing a girl who had dumped me because I wasn't a believer to a campus crusade for Christ rally and they laid out the gospel with no frills. And, and um, it's interesting as I think the re reformers say that we're not aware of our depravity until they hear the gospel. And all of a sudden I'm, it was clear as a bell that, that I was a sinner, that I was uh, judged and that Christ was the answer. And, and I, they kept handing out these papers to sign. I had to sign anything including away my life because it was so compelling. Mm -hmm. uh, it's like the, the, the um, scales fell off my eyes and I saw what I'd been. I, I was, I was a fairly violent young man as well. And, and all that, all that was erased by my, by my rebirth in, um, in a campus crusade. And, and um, I had been to the college chaplain the Episcopal College chaplain and asked them a test question. I think this is in the, in, in the article. Uh, my question was, uh, can I sleep with my girlfriend? And he said, well, if you love her, yes. And I knew that was the wrong answer. Mm -hmm. And I never went back. And um, 
eventually wandered back to the Campus Crusade was very dispensationalist. Um, and I began to see the flaws in it. And I remembered the sacraments and the ordered way of worship in the Episcopal Church I'd experienced as a young man and was also delving in the church fathers, some, and wandered back by way of the West Diocese of West Virginia's uh, Camp and Conference Center as a counselor for two summers, mm -hmm. uh, Peter and Conference Center. And uh, <laughs> there were many clergy and others who were not happy to have me. Uh, because I was part of the Jesus movement. I uh, just, just saw the movie um, uh, Jesus Revolution, and it, it is really accurate as to what it was like, although the numbers weren't as great at Western University as it was in California. Uh, but I, I, I just, um, I wandered back to more stability. Um, it, the charismatic movement was going on, and although there was a lot of good in it, there was a lot of nonsense in it. Mm -hmm. um, and... Uh, I'm, I'm happily Episcopalian. Um, don't always agree with the church the farther up you go in the hierarchy, but um, I'm, I'm happily uh, at home here. Yeah. Um, I was going to say uh, about uh, another thing, I, I, I guess our listeners, of course, have picked up by now that all three of us are uh, Episcopal clergy. And so... Um, I, we, we, this episode, not all our episodes have, um, Episcopal, it's not like all Episcopal guests we get, we're thankful to get lots of guests from different traditions, um, you know, not just under the Protestant umbrella. And we've asked, we've had Pete guests from, uh, other parts of Anglicanism. Uh, but so, uh, you know, we, we might be able to relate to some of these things. I wanted to get into, um, once you were in Episcopal, uh, now you matriculated into Virginia Seminary. Is this where you did? Uh, if you did your seminary coursework, as yes. Well? And I was a religion major at West Virginia Wesleyan College before that. Okay. So I I I, I did battle with biblical criticism the first uh, year and a half in college, and then three years in seminary. I learned Hebrew and Greek and Aramaic so I could fight them on their own terms. Wow. Okay. Um, and. Um, as I said in my paper, I found a mentor in Reg Fuller, who we often disagree, but but he didn't, as many faculty members did, grade me down a letter grade or two simply because of my point of view. Um, he let me argue my point of view. If I argued it poorly, he shredded me. Uh, but but if I argued my point well, he gave me the grade. That was that was liberal in the true sense of the word, right? Absolutely. Open to any yeah, points of view. Open any points of view as long as you can make your case for it. It's amazing um, how that is so often not the case in so much academia now. Oh, Vir Virginia Seminary was so hostile to the Jesus people that rolled in. Um, I had a fieldwork supervisor who. Uh, tried to get me out of ground out of seminary and uh, the, the head of field work tr sent me there to get rid of me. And I had a head of a, a um, my field work committee wrote him a letter and said, Oh, the problem isn't Jay. The problem is the rector doesn't believe in God. Yeah. Um, and it saved my, it saved my vocation. Yeah. Wow. Um, now, Jay, did you say I'm that sorry, you, did... yeah, I'm sorry, what were you going to say, James? I was going to say, Jay, did you say you graduated in 1980 or started in 1980? Graduated in 1980. Okay, so you missed my dad by one semester. He started in the fall of 80. 
Okay. Yeah. Um, so I guess before we get into what I was going to ask next, let's define biblical criticism. I mean, some of our listeners may know of it. I guess I could offer up a definition if anything, anything you all want to add to it, but biblical criticism, um, I guess you could take it, um, you could just take the word at its face value. It's criticism of the Bible doesn't necessarily mean like a negative criticism of the Bible, but it's basically the, uh, the scholarly study. Um, and by looking at scripture and kind of not, I guess, giving it a certain privilege above any other type of historical writing or writing from earlier history that you would, um, not giving any more privilege than you would for any other writing, um, which, uh, if necessary, can involve dispensing with, um, you know, uh, holding a certain reverence or level of sacredness to it um, that wouldn't allow you to, um, to to really like question maybe the historicity of certain aspects, things like that. Um, it's not a new thing. It's uh, it's not really been it's not really from what i understand it hasn't historical criticism while i think it's definitely like has been wholly embraced and baked into you know the academy i guess if you will it's not really the primary angle i guess these days of of a lot of biblical scholarship it was kind of in vogue i mean it goes back to europe 200 years yes but it's all it was kind of in vogue in a lot of american seminaries in kind of the mid 20th century uh would, would there anything you'd, you'd add to that jay as far as um and i mean you... um i i think that um the work i was doing over the last 10 years has been with a jewish scholar at a secular university mm-hmm. uh which she doesn't believe almost anything happened historically mm-hmm. Um, uh, lovely lady, um, Elizabeth Freed, and uh, we've re- published some papers together, which I utterly repudiate now um, with the turnaround that I've had. And and the, there really is, I um, I'm going to quote from scripture, um, in that I think the the thing that's missing is. Uh, Paul writes in 1 Corinthians, the person without the spirit does not accept the things that come from the spirit of God, but considers them foolishness and cannot understand them because they are discerned only through the spirit. And I think once you come down to a purely secular approach to scripture, you you can't possibly understand it properly. Right. Um, and that sounds almost Gnostic, and I don't mean it to sound that way. Mm-hmm. But... Um, Seminaries still are are deeply engaged in in um, critical thinking about about scripture. For example, I, I feel like I'm going through a uh, having walked away from all that, going through a deprogramming phase. Whereas we read, read, read the gospel from John su- Sunday, my first thought was, "Oh, you can't trust John because John was late and et cetera, et cetera." And then I'm saying, "No, I don't believe that anymore." Right. He, he's the um, yeah. theological gospel, while the other three are more closer to the right. Yeah. And That's and kind of he's the only one that claims to come from a, from an eyewitness. Right. <clears throat> yeah. It. 
I guess my attitude to, to I I've kind of come to a place where I'm kind of post critical. I'm not. Um, yes. Yeah. There's some yeah. that are there. Yeah. Yeah. I'm kind of that's um, because I, I don't, for instance, I think Jen, and I know that um, there isn't always good reasoning. There, there isn't always a good theological reason for this, but I think Genesis one through 11 uh, is best to be seen as, is a type is mytho history. Um, I wouldn't, but I wouldn't also extend that to speak to a lot of other narratives in the scripture. And I also, uh, and I'm at the same time, very, uh, I find just, I'm just very opposed to the attitude, which you bring up in the article that, that automatically assumes, uh, miracles and things we would call supernatural don't happen i'm very opposed to that just assumption that i think underlies so much of historical uh critical work now how do i reconcile that with my genesis 1 through 11 i mean let's like i feel like a lot of conservative quote-unquote scholars have that understanding of genesis 1 through 11 today um yes and of course i don't want to spend the whole episode on genesis 1 through 11 but all to say is that you know i i think um you know, I I get that it, it's like historical criticism. Once once you learn it, um, or once once you've been exposed to it, once you've seen like its arguments, um, you can't just like we can't just like plug our ears and pretend we never heard it. Um, but at the same time, it's like how do we how is the method exactly being used i think is usually the case when i when i come across um you know some of the issues i have with the with the critical scholarship how is the method being used i'm also are the historical critics being critical uh enough i mean i think of like a theologian like wolfhart pannenberg who was you know totally um I don't want to say embrace, but said like, look, historical criticism's here. It's not going anywhere. But by using the same methods and tools of historical criticism, we can actually rule in the affirmative on the messianic claims of Jesus. I mean, he used yes. the yeah, to, yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, he used the method in a way perhaps different than. There are some who do correct. No like, question about it. Yes, right. Um, so well, I, I think of uh, Reverend Childs in the Old Testament does mm-hmm. some of the same stuff with his canonical criticism. Right, right. Um, I was going to say, your. Um, I'm going to share a quote from the article. You said, um, as you found yourself kind of battling, uh, you said a whole bunch of us, uh, or I battled my way through a religion degree in college and then through seminary. There were a whole bunch of us who fought historical criticism. We had experienced the living God. We did not share the often unacknowledged bias of biblical studies since the Enlightenment, that miracles do not happen. When miracles are reported in the Bible, alternative explanations must be found. This is a huge driver, in my opinion, of secular uh, biblical scholarship. Um, Another thing I've noticed is that uh, a lot of historical critical scholarship doesn't, it doesn't have this, any, uh, it, it, it totally rejects, it doesn't come out and say it, but it rejects any unifying principle to the various writings of scripture, like, Oh, I agree. Yes. And like the passages that, you know, cause my attitude is like passages need to be read always in light of other passages. Um, cause it's like a web really, they all point to the center, which I believe is Christ. 
Um, I agree. Yes. Many critics would say that's not a proper method of reading scripture that, that, that even by doing so, you know, we're, we're, we have dogmatic assumptions or we're trying to force passages to fit our dogmatic viewpoint. But um, I don't know what, what, what would you say to that? If, if someone accused, I guess you of that by, you know, seeing scriptures as, as having a unity. Um, I guess start with guilty as charged. <laughs> What's that? Guilty as charged. Um, yeah. I think Christ is the center of, of, of the universe, of, of, of the scripture, of, um, of history. Um, and it is no more arbitrary to claim that than to claim that there is no center. They're both uh, faith statements. Mm-hmm. Um one is a lack of faith statement, but it's a faith statement nonetheless. Mm-hmm. And the other is a statement of faith having experienced the risen Christ. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. Um. So, so I, I, uh, I also majored in religious studies in college, um, and I was blessed to have several professors who were believers, um, and so that was helpful but of course they were beholden to a curriculum that required the teaching of the historical critical method and 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 historical criticism um and so what i came to realize as someone who trusts god and also trusts scripture scripture implicitly um, I was raised as an Episcopalian, but I was raised by a father who was an evangelical Episcopalian. So, like, I, I was raised um, pretty close to an inerrantist. Um, and so uh, he wouldn't say that. But when we have talked about it since, there have been elements of what my dad would say that really do mesh pretty well with a, a looser view of inerrancy. Um but but what I'm getting at here is that I became disenchanted with historical criti- the historical critical method and historical criticism, what have you, um, when I realized that it's not really the search for truth that it sort of purports itself to be, but it's the search for historically verifiable facts, which Correct. those two are obviously not synonymous. No, they're not. Um, and so you can, you know, I, I mean, even when I was at BTS, I graduated in 2016, there was, um, a, uh, a person who was, um, master's degree, who was an, uh, a TA for our old Testament class who told us in no uncertain terms that David didn't exist. Oh yeah. Um, which, I mean, I know all this is old hat for you, but, um, when I first heard that, I was like. I've never heard that before. I didn't believe it, um, but I've never heard that before. Um, And it's because the requirement is that something must be historically verifiable if it is to be considered true. Um, A great, a great uh, biblical scholar who has done some debunking of that idea, especially with like the Exodus is um, Tremper Longman, who's got. Yes, I just finished the book written by he and John Walton. Oh, is that the um, the lost um, 
Lost World of Adam and Eve. There you go. Yeah. Uh-huh. Um, but he, he wrote How to Read Exodus and has written uh, quite a bit about Exodus and has debunked the idea that if something cannot be archaeologically proven, then it must not be true, which is something that you um, explained pretty clearly in your article. Yes. Um, would you like to expand on that maybe a little bit? Well, um, the archaeology was about 20 years ago. I finally came to the point where I, I quit fighting and I said, can I be right? And they all be wrong. And I said, probably not. So I, I capitulated and, and joined them uh, pretty wholeheartedly. Right. Um, and the archaeology of Palestine is, is pretty well demonstrated very little sign of 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 trashed cities burned cities etc from the ex uh, from the conquest uh supposedly the 13th century which i think they're they're digging in the wrong century to start with <laughs> right um but when i read this scripture carefully they only destroyed three cities joshua i and Hatzor. um and and i think they're digging at the wrong tell for i there's a a uh, very fundamentalist guy named Bryant Wood that's digging at another tell nearby that he thinks is I. Mm-hmm. Um, but if you read the, the text carefully, um, after they describe the conquest, they they list all the cities that were con- were conquered. Mm-hmm. Um, right. And and scholarship is is not being careful in, in its critic criticality. Yeah, I was going to kind of backing up a a little bit. um, James mentioned a little bit when he started to see through, uh, I guess, the fallibility he senses in the historical critical method. And I think that by his kind of his his insight of there's a distinction between something being true and something having a historically verified, something being historically verifiable. Verifiable, yeah. What what was your... um, moment because it seems like you just said how you kind of you bought in wholeheartedly um it seemed you kind of really jumped right into that world um especially at probably an exciting time for the 60s 70s and 80s when a lot of these um these scholars were were these some of these top scholars were around um but what was your uh, i guess your w- when you started to to have the realization of uh of the i guess the the shifting sands of historical criticism when, when, what's I, I can tell you pinpoint exactly where it happened yeah. i had a pile of books next to my desk to my wife's chagrin because i bought them all from amazon.com and for a lot of money and okay. uh, they were all basically dating the torah the five books of moses to the, to the time of the maccabees or even later and I was trying to come up with what I thought about it. And I had this wild hair to look at the 8th century prophets, Isaiah 1 through 39, uh, uh, Micah, Hosea, and Amos, and see what they knew about the, about the stories of the Torah. And went through with the highlighter through all four prophets, and they knew a lot. And I'm thinking, this doesn't fit the paradigm that that, that is is being currently foisted on us by biblical scholarship Mm -hmm. uh they shouldn't know these stories um and they know them in order and 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 they know uh detail uh so so um 
I began that's that that was the crumbling of the of the of the edifice for me. I think I had become I think I had become concerned about it before that, but that that was the that was the moment where it where it all fell apart for me. Mm-hmm. And when it fell apart, like what what was your because obviously you you you've had this lifelong interest and passion in biblical study. Um where did you find yourself turning to? I mean, other, I mean, obviously, an answer I suspect you might give is like, well, the Bible is God's word. Like, that's all you need. Yeah. But like, well, like what kind of resource, answer. what kind of, I guess, uh, did you find, uh, did you feel alone at that point? Or did you, did you tap into some other scholars out there, some other people that, that um, you felt highlighted the same issues that you were trying to see? I've I've turned to evangelical scholars. Yeah, yeah. Um, uh, Tremper Long, Longman's one of them. Uh, I've got the introduction by Lesore Hubbard and uh, Bush for the Old Testament. An old introduction by a guy named Harrison to the New Testament. Um, I, I'm currently trying out the uh, Reformation Study Bible, which uh, I sometimes disagree with because I'm I'm almost a Calvinist but can't go all the way, can't commit. Um, and, and, but but the the historical notes on it are are particularly good. Mm-hmm. Um, and I also had I had to be willing to be shunned by the academy. Mm-hmm. It it is a fiercely uh, closed world, and mm-hmm. if you do not share their point of view, you are a pariah. Uh, every year, I gather that when Society of Biblical Literature meets. They have a movement to to. If you've ever been to a Society of Biblical Literature meeting, there is a an auditorium of immense size with booksellers, including InterVarsity Press. Mm-hmm. And the, at least last year, they had a big hubbub about whether to ban InterVarsity Press, who puts out some very good stuff. Right. Um, but they don't agree with the with the higher critical assumptions about miracles and verify verifiability before you can believe it. Uh, so they 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 want them gone. Mm-hmm. Uh, so far, they haven't managed to pull it off. You know, um, you you brought up Tremper Longman earlier. I don't know if you've read a biblical history of Israel that uh, Proven Long and Longman did together. Yes. Uh, that was a just for for me one of, that was one of the books that really um was a big uh boost of confidence for me in kind of not giving up on like that any that that they got the old testament so old and the it, it's it, the history so hazy that nothing can ultimately yeah, yeah, yeah. About yes 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 um that that book when i read that i was i thought wow you know like um these three guys seem to have really done their homework, really done their research, and they're calling into questions. So they're just exposing a lot of the assumptions that I guess the yes the more mainstream and, and the assumptions are the assumptions are the uh, the termites at the root of biblical scholarship. Mm-hmm. Assumption that you can't believe something unless it's verifiable historically. Mm-hmm. Uh, the assumption that something miraculous has to have another explanation. Uh, those assumptions are are what are are making 
the whole histor- biblical historical critical method a house of cards. Now, but of course, and I think you we we share that in common. We I, we have found ourselves kind of going when I asked you the question earlier about like who did you turn to, and you said evangelical scholars. I too find myself um, a lot of the biblical scholars I read from, I guess, kind of broadly fit in that evangelical. You know, it's um, yes, but kind of my personal favorite you know, study Bible. I think we talked in a pre-show, you know, I like, I like, a, you know, I like some of Keener's work and I like the NIV study Bible. And, you know, I've, a lot of these people I've read. It's good. It's a good Bible. It is. Yeah. And, and some of these people I've read from IVP or Baker. I mean, a lot of them are evangelical scholars. And I feel like um, I was kind of surprised when I found myself reading that because it was, they seemed so well-reasoned. They were not the like one dimensional boogeymen that I felt like, Oh no! Yes, some exactly. of the yes, some of the thinking in in the mainline seminary settings that I was in um, was that you know the evangel. Well, first off, the word evangelical is so such there's so much baggage to that term, and people it have does a, it does a signifier for you know uh, you know crass uh, you know very politicized you know Christian who has right. no idea about you know right. the the serious serious reading or study of the Bible, but. Like gosh, these scholars I find from the evangelical world are um, have been I, just some of the best ones. <laughs> I remember, yeah, I, ben, I, ben I found the same thing. Ben Witherington the third. I mean, he's he's been called a fundamentalist by like you know when he debates Bart Ehrman, he gets called a you know I think Ehrman's referred to Witherington as a fundamentalist. Like, in oh it. yeah, so, yeah. The guy debated yes. a fundamentalist, Ben Witherington. So well, Ben Witherington wrote an entire book, Jesus Quest, where he just totally demolished um, the arguments of of all the the well the Jesus Seminar people, but it, but also yes. people like Crossan and Borg, I guess, who were Jesus Seminar. Just um, you know, it, it seemed uh, like like okay, so I'm supposed to listen to the Jesus Seminar people over this guy no i don't think so you know um, no i don't think so at all <laughs> so there but it's like it's like these evangelical scholars need to be taken seriously who cares if they're evangelical you know so yes and 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 i and i will stay with them the rest of my till till they put me in the ground mm-hmm. because sure. I, I think they are more sound um right. and they don't bear those those uh presuppositions that 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 uh, critical biblical scholarship share, and they are no more that for all the accusations of being fundamentalist and closed-minded, there is nothing more closed-minded than than the academic study of Scripture. Right. Um, I am no longer my my, my Jewish friend. I write papers with is, is keeps sending these me these emails. Trying to figure out what's wrong with me, basically. Mm-hmm. Yeah, she's Jewish to start with, so we, we there'll be we, some differences we, we there. Yeah, anyway, yeah, there's some differences <laughs> to start with. Yes. Um, but yeah, and, and and I've noticed like if you just go to the footnotes and just all the any all the absolutely all the relevant like these evangelical scholars like again I hate even using that term because it's like I feel like it's the term others have. Th- you know, thrown them under. And, right. yeah. uh, you know, I mean, and, 
usually when I read something from uh, from one of them, I see like so many footnotes and basically all the relevant um, material out there that could possibly engage with. They get their hands on it and make sure that they um, take it into account when they're doing their own, you know. So it's like I don't think like the, I guess, you know, the mainstream again i guess like even calling it the mainstream uh mainstream biblical scholarship because it's not like they're really just it's very insular and they're all just reading each other so i don't know if they're actually mainstream but you know the, the ones that at at, at at the legacy school the, the mainstream places um it's like they, yeah. don't have, they don't have an upper hand on you know on these people so well one thing that no, no i agree one, one thing that's troubled me is that um, evangelical scholarship does not have the benefit of not being self-critical, um, whereas a lot of historical critical scholarship can just skate by without being self-critical of, of the assumptions that are made and of the presuppositions. Mm-hmm. Like, I mean, one that's always troubled me is why does the most why does the shortest, most laconic statement have to be the most original? Yes, correct. That, yeah, that, yeah. That, you know that's that's a that's a foregone conclusion in historical critical scholarship, but it's un it's it's untested. Um, yes. yes. Um, and you know another thing about evangelical scholarship, the reason why it's been burgeoning and flowering in such a wonderful way is because they've already had their own reckoning. In the '90s, Mark Knoll wrote the scandal of the evangelical mind, where people were. Um, within evangelicalism were really turned off by academia for some of the same things we're talking about today, right? But uh, Mark Knoll issued that as a kind of clarion call to evangelicals to actually engage in good biblical scholarship based on their faith, like to do what the Reformers did, to do what the Fathers did, which is to read Scripture through the lens of faith and to not engage in a hermeneutic of skepticism. Because... right. That's, I mean, that's already setting yourself up to fail. If you're if you're saying I don't believe this when I read it, then you're going to immediately say miracles totally out. Mm-hmm. Well, it's Anselm's uh, faith seeking understanding, right, right. And 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 everybody comes with a faith position. I read, I went through a long uh, John Dominic Crossan phase. I read everything he wrote. Um, and and Crossan starts out with a with a very um, very um, he basically says if there's no more reason to believe in this God than the gods of Greece and Rome. Mm-hmm. Um, and then with machine like uh, precision, he he slices the the uh, the Gospels to, to pieces. And comes up with theories like that the, the the Gospel of Peter is the original uh, resurrection story, right? Which is just absurd, mm-hmm. right? It's like how is that supposed to be more believable? I guess that yeah, no, it, it's and 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 he's a he's a heck of a nice guy. I've 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 seen him present. He's a, but but he's but he's no longer Christian, right? And he's and he and I think he's dead wrong about what he says, right? Well, and like John Dominic Crossan and Marcus Borg and Bart Ehrman, um, all of them. Well, I mean, the Jesus Seminar writ large, like when I when I actually read about how they determined whether things were original or not original, 
it was absolutely baffling to me that anyone would possibly believe what they said. Mm-hmm. Yeah, like the voting with the different colored cubes or marbles or whatever, whether it was sort of like maybe we think Jesus might have said this and then Jesus definitely said this. And all the stuff that Jesus said that they they believe Jesus said was the stuff that they viewed as the most esoteric possible. Absolutely. You know, um, so he's, he's sort of a um, cynic philosopher. Yeah, right. Right. It's almost like Buddhist. And Borg also drew a lot of connection between, you know, Borg could not be the eschatological prophet uh, that, um, I mean, I think Ehrman would agree with, but also like Albert Albert Schweitzer, Johannes Weiss, those, their uh, really discoveries and emphases of of the apocalyptic nature, Jesus is what ended so much of the, you know, as we know of the early quest for the historical Jesus, they really are just reading their own vision into Jesus. And of course, Borg ends up doing that. Again, and of course, Borg comes up with the opposite of an apocalyptic Jesus, which um, it's it, it's almost like they're they also kind of the Jesus seminar is kind of an extreme example because even some of them were so eccentric they put themselves outside of. But Borg right. was uh, Borg was a was a huge scholar. I do want to put a plug in. I don't know if uh, either. Well, I know James. I, I think you know of Paul Hinlicky and his daughter Sarah Hinlicky. Yeah. their podcast Queen of the Sciences. Their mm-hmm. last episode is called the Jesus Seminar. It was basically a uh, uh, an hour-long episode of a critique of Marcus Borgs. I, I recommend our nice. listeners to listen to that. It's very timely that we're doing this episode um, on here in Borg. But yeah, it's, it's it's a very recent episode on that show. So, but uh, well, yeah. to, to turn back to your question about what what changed my mind, uh, one one of the things I've become more and more troubled by is there's no guardrails in 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 in, in critical scholarship. There's no um, nothing that that stops people from going into just absolute, absolute, complete speculation. Mm-hmm. Um, and the prophets were that guardrail for me. Um, and and if there's no guardrail, that means you you can write almost anything for a PhD thesis, mm-hmm. right? And argue it. And I think that's part of part of part of what makes this this whole system work is the free the the guardrails are gone. They're down. Uh, say, for example, the church fathers references to the to the gospel writers being Mark, Matthew, Luke and John. If the, those church fathers are wrong, then it's a free for all for Ph.D. theses about who wrote the gospels or if they were, were they written by communities and you know, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And and, and I, I had been troubled by the lack of guardrails for a long time. Mm-hmm. Well, and I think you're starting to see that. You, you mentioned how um, anyone can write a thesis about it. You're literally starting to see. I don't know if you've looked at some of the dissertation titles, you know, uh, that have that are prob- probably a lot of them are presented at P- SBL. Um, yes, yeah. I, I know there's a colleague of mine who's a he's a clergy person. He's a and he's very much a uh, considers himself a historical critical, you know, Boltmanian scholar, but. Yeah. He, he finds these dissertations uh, laughable because they're so they're not even saying anything. It's just it's a lot of like postmodern jargon. Uh, yes. Yeah. Uh, yeah. That. Arguments about words. Yeah. As, and, as scripture and calls it. Like, I can't believe anyone approved like like if I was this person's PhD supervisor, 
you know, I would not, I would not have uh, approved it. So it's just kind of interesting the, the way you say that when the guardrails are totally taken down, anything can basically write, anyone can basically write anything. And now it's almost turning into the, the it's going in the pseudo scholarly direction. I agree. A lot of them would look at me like, well, you know, you, you don't have impressive credentials and you're not the one writing good stuff and getting published and going to SP. I'm like, I, I get that, but I also, I have common sense and I'm able to look at a title of something and an abstract of something and know that that's not actually really saying anything. So well, no, that was no, kind I of salty of me yeah. to say it was. <laughs> no. was well, I, I, I sat through, sat, sat through uh, seminars at SPL. I used to go to SPL. I sat through seminars or we would get an edition of the Journal of Biblical Literature and it's my it's all minutia. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And stuff that it would just bore me to death to start with. Right. Um, and secondly, had no real bearing on my on 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 scripture writ large. <laughs> and uh, yeah, I agree. Um, well, and, and and one of the things that has also become sort of in vogue, especially with the ethos in our society right now, is that a lot of biblical scholarship that's being done right now is sort of based on a particular hermeneutical camp. A woman is reading scripture. Theology. Yeah. And and so it's, you know, um, like I I remember, I remember being in seminary and, and hearing someone interpret the story of um, Miriam being uh, chastened by God as both Moses and Aaron were wrong, Miriam was right, um, and so therefore, ultimately, God was kind of wrong for yes, chasing yeah, her. Yes, or yes, <laughs> if you didn't want to go that far, then you would just say, "Well, this story was written down by a man, and therefore, uh-huh. it's not, it's not, um, it's not to be trusted." You know, what's the true story of Miriam? Yes, and so yes. what what ends up happening, and here's my saltiness, Drew. What ends up happening is that this is just an engagement with eisegesis. Mm-hmm. We we're we're you know we're, we've gone past we biblical scholarship, at least in the historical critical camp, has jumped the shark, and what they basically have arrived at is people are now getting doctorates based on their opinions not based on actual legitimate good scholarship. Oh, I agree. Um, and 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 I think that should lead everyone who's going to go to a seminary to be very concerned about the actual um like the requirements of that seminary and who's teaching at that seminary. Um but as we know in the Episcopal world, some of that is going to be determined for you by your oh, yeah. bishop. Yes, it um, is. And if your bishop has given in whole hog to that ideology, then um, it's just going to be sort of a Grant and Barrett type situation. Um, I don't mean to sound alarmist because, you know, God is still sovereign. <laughs> yes. <laughs> God, well, yeah, yeah, you know, yeah, yeah. Yes. Uh, God, God ultimately determines the outcome of this life. And it's shown to us most viscerally in the resurrection of the dead and the resurrection of Jesus, which we're celebrating during this Easter season. So, um, but, but yeah, that is, I mean, there, there were very few professors at BTS 
then I felt like I could actually trust what they were saying and take it without the grain of salt, you know. I, I can think of three out of all the professors I had and the librarian who was a mentor of mine, a guy named Jack Goodwin, mm-hmm. who was uh, really uh, students flocked to him because he was a solid Christian presence amidst all this speculation and, and doubt and ennui. Right. Mm-hmm. Right. And it's good to, what a blessing it is to have had those men. I know you mentioned Reginald Fuller, who um, allowed you, um, you know, he challenged you, like, like it's okay to have a viewpoint that I would not, maybe not agree with. But yes. Oh, yeah, he did. Yes. Back it up, um, you know, and it's, um, it sounds like they, people like that were a blessing to you during, during a time where, yeah, a million things are being thrown at you and it can become very confusing and disheartening. Um, Yes, and 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 I was reading the the most critical scholars like Thomas Thompson on on a- Abraham, and I knew that what was coming down the pike. I knew they were going to win the battle, mm-hmm. and they have now. Yeah, and and there is no Abraham, there is no Isaac, there is no Jacob. It's all etiological legends, and and I just don't buy it. Mm-hmm. I did right. for a while. Do you, do you think being in the ministry? Because it'd be one thing if you you ended up spending your life and career in academia, but being in the ministry where you're uh, you're in the real world or the realer yes. world at least than um, a very you know closed environment where a lot of people are going to going to share a lot of the same assumptions, and you're dealing with people who they're they're going to church because. They want to know how to pray and how to have faith and how to, you know, they, they have all this stuff going on in their lives. They're coming there. A lot of them are most of them, unless they're odd, to be frank, they're coming mm-hmm. there. Right. Right. They're coming there for God. Did Do you think being in the ministry is what kind of kept you grounded in you know, you, you have this interest and passion in biblical studies, you follow it, but also did the ministry have anything to do with, um, um, you know, staying grounded? Yeah, and, and for, for a little part of it, I was living kind of a schizophrenic life because I, because I was living as if I believe what I believe now, but my scholarship was, was in another, another, another dimension and domain. But mm-hmm. yeah, it keeps you grounded. I, I buried a, uh, 25 year old yesterday that had from age 14 had schizo schizoaffective disorder and finally committed suicide. Yeah. Um, and telling the family about Tillich's ground of being this is going to do a thing to help them. Right. <laughs> right. Right. Yeah. As much as that may be uh, interesting, though. Though to be honest, I I never really gotten to Tillich so much, but um, no, but... Tillich was was king when I was in Virginia Seminary. Yeah. Um, so I guess what I was, uh, so you, um, went through, so uh, uh, connected to the ministry aspect, you also say how you've, um, it seems like you've been really like proactive with like learning like the biblical languages and knowing stuff in your article, how over and I don't know if you did this as part of seminary coursework or if you did did this as continuing ed, but it seems like you've really been life a lifelong student of 
Greek, Hebrew, and um, Aramaic. And, uh, you know, most clergy, uh, I know, like, including, I'm including myself here, cannot boast a proficiency in those languages. Uh, And especially in pastoral ministry, your time gets filled up any number of things, you know. But I find myself, and I find myself, you know, I, I go to the Hebrew and Greek lexicons in my sermon writings. Um, but, you know, but to to spend that time deeply immersed in the languages sounds quite, I mean, it, it sounds like a task, but it also seems very deeply enriching. How has this, um, um, has this really been, I guess, what, what does the life of a scholar priest look like for you, I mean, I know you touched on it being it, was, it seems case seemed kind of like a double life at some point, but does it ever does it ever really meet and come together? Oh, absolutely, yeah. And and um, my last full time gig was at uh, St. Paul's Kingsport in Tennessee, which is right up against Virginia. Mm-hmm. And the guy that followed me there is a guy, a guy named Johnny Tuttle, who's a fabulous young priest. And uh, he and I would meet every Friday to read the Greek of the uh, gospel for the s- Sunday following. And um, it, it was it was great. I mean, we ended up talking about politics and everything else as well. But 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 um, yeah. And 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 it, and, it, and, it, and it affects my teaching and my preaching because I, I can I can go. To, and I was lucky because they don't allow it now, but they allowed me to skip introduction to Bible in, at Virginia Seminary because I'd already had it at West Virginia Wesleyan mm-hmm. and allowed me to dive right into Hebrew and Greek. And I had two, sem- I had four semesters of each. And then when I got out, I, my organist in uh, Barbersville, West Virginia, where I spent 10 years as the rector of a small church, was the head of the classics department at Marshall University. So I took four semesters of classical Greek as well. Which is a whole other kettle of fish. It is so yeah. difficult. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. I was uh, going to say we're we're getting near to our time here, but um, I encourage our listeners to to look up uh, Reverend J. Mills' article uh, in the Living Church again. It's called um, "There and Back Again: Historical Critical Skepticism and a Renewed Faith." Uh, and it kind of we kind of skipped around, jumped around a little bit, but um, that'll give you kind of the the, the stricter chronology, I guess. Uh, and it's not a terribly long article. Um, I know Living Church can publish some really long ones, but it's but it's a good article, and and <laughs> it's um and uh, I enjoyed reading it, so I do recommend our listeners to uh, to to check that out. And I uh, wanted to say, you know, you've lived. Sounds like you lived through the sex, drugs, and rock and roll, and. Uh, I did. Seems like rock and roll has at least stuck with you. Um, yeah, that's the only thing and, left. Yes. And I'm wondering, you know, we were talking in our pre-show conversation. The listeners can't see, but he has a Jay has a BB King poster on his walls and, and wall, and he he uh, he plays. He's gotten back into playing guitar for three years now. He says he used to play yeah. it back in the Jesus Movement days. But um, but uh, yeah, uh, what are your some of your favorite? I don't know if you had to pick a three favorite kind of music artists uh um all the brothers uh bb king and i am smitten by a group from california that's a fusion of of uh hip-hop and um and latin music called ozo motley you'll have to sit type that and send it to me because i uh that i like 
Latin. I like like Cuban jazz and stuff. I'm not big into hip hop, but it's, like- <laughs> it's, it's wonderful stuff. And uh, they're, they're, unlike most of the, the rappers, they they're not into the money and the women and the drugs. They're they're very progressive in their approach to challenging the status quo for uh, for race in America. Mm. And it's and it's just kicking good music. Okay. I'll make sure to check it out. Uh, and okay, I'll I, send you. I'll send you. Uh, I'll PM. The, second, the you and Almond Brothers. They are, and that's not a band I didn't appreciate until maybe only a couple of years ago. Cl- colleague of mine listened to a lot of them, which kind of uh, moved me to get into it as well. And 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 oh, they were such a tight band. Such a tight. Hey, that's a good word for. Them. I mean, they were just a solid band musically, um, songwriting wise, um, yeah. very and just musicianship wise. Uh, such a good band. <laughs> so, yeah. And and uh, what very few people know, I read Greg Allman's uh, autobiography. Near the end of his life, he turned towards God after he got clean, and he ended up in the Episcopal Church. Hmm. Okay. Wow, I did not know that. Uh, you know, did I know that? I think I did know that. I think I read that years ago. Yeah. That was Greg, you said? Yeah, Greg, yeah. Which ones yeah, are Dwayne not- died young and a... Dwayne lived hard, lived fast, rode hard, rode fast, and yeah. died in a motorcycle accident. Uh, true story, actually, a band I played in. Um, I don't ever really talk about music, my musicianship on the show, but I, I'm a bass player. I and I've played uh, in my kind of early to mid twenties. I played in a couple different bands, and uh, one was a band uh, that um, we did like a little tour of the East Coast, I guess. Oh, cool. Um, and we went to Dwayne's grave uh, and visited Dwayne Allman's grave. So I can't even yeah, what yeah. state that's in, but it was, it was like, we went Southeast. It wasn't just like, you know, East coast, but yeah, my, my, my young fun days, I guess you could say. That. <laughs> so, yeah. Yeah. That's great. Yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, James, did you want to weigh in on any of that music stuff? You love music. I do love music. Um, <laughs> So I, you know, I, I, I love classic rock. I love metal, um, but classic rock, uh, top three bands probably be Led Zeppelin, Pink Floyd and the Marshall Tucker band. Oh, I love Floyd. Yeah. My mom grew up down the street from, uh, from Toy and Tommy Caldwell from the Marshall Tucker band. So. Oh my goodness. Wow. Yeah. I'm from Spartanburg. So just, just South of you. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Cool. Awesome. Yeah. Well, uh, yeah, uh, this is good show, good conversation. Um, and I enjoyed uh, it. Thank you, guys. Well, I'll do another list for uh, your. Who's your top? Uh, we'll all go go around. Who's our favorite? Since this is about biblical scholarship, let's do a favorites list for. Uh, I don't know what's with me into favorites and ranking, but it's just fun because it's it's fun. It's just fun to see other people's choices. Who who would be your top three biblical, favorite biblical scholars? Uh, I guess um, not to you know put you on the spot um, it might be a hard two of them are uh, are now dead they're both anglicans one was named joyce baldwin she wrote a good um commentary on daniel and and also on on uh uh zechariah and haggai for uh, intervarsity press mm-hmm. another one named Derek kidner who mm-hmm. wrote on the psalms and uh genesis for intervarsity press and um I really used to like G.E. Ladd, mm-hmm. who taught at Fuller, if right. I'm not mistaken. That's a, that's a, that sounds right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yep. 
uh we did a, we did a series where we did a top theologians uh uh but we went through each one i don't know if we, we i don't know if we maybe do that for biblical scholars in the future but um james <laughs> you have a top three yeah i mean off the top of my head um i i absolutely love trimper longman um so he'd be my fave um and then uh john kleinig i like him quite a bit he's uh, a lutheran i think he's from australia mm-hmm. um but he's really good. His commentary on Hebrews, I thought was outstanding when I used it for a Bible study fairly recently. It was in the Concordia series. And then um, I had the third one a minute ago, but it, it uh, the name left me. Escaped you. Yeah. yeah. I'll, I'll tell you for the show notes later. <laughs> comes back to you. I, I don't even know if I have it. Larry Hurtado is definitely high on my list. Maybe number one. Um, his work on early Christian devotion. He's done a few books on that. Um, he's good stuff. Yes. And he's so, um, he's part of that, you know, school, I guess, that believe, you know, that high Christology came very early. Yes, uh, he is. Yes. Divinic, divinic understandings of Jesus came very early in the church rather than later, uh, which some popular narratives say, you know, otherwise. But, but Hurtado made, for me, it was a very compelling, gave very compelling, convincing arguments for that. And um, really uh, kind of turned upside down or, or really just really could pick apart some of the, I guess, uh, you know, early 20th, late 19th century. Mm-hmm. Uh, scholarship yep. that. Um, so, yeah, him and uh, I don't know, I guess uh, he, he'd be up there. I, I guess uh, I, did, I mentioned what Witherington earlier, his book, Jesus Quest, was a big uh i remember yeah. that early on when all i had read were people like earman um like for for a little while when i actually got into studying behind the scenes of the bible i, I kind of just it didn't know i was before seminary didn't know all that was out there right. um, you know uh, so i kind of looked at bookshelves of local bookstores and which either have either popular devotional stuff or it'll have stuff from bart Ehrman or something like that uh who's who's these that's one of the problems is all you can get at barnes and noble are the are the radicals (laughs) right Right. you don't have any of the mainstream or or even more conservative scholars show up uh you got Either the 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 fly-by-nighters, the dispensationalists, which mm-hmm. I probably made a lot of enemies by saying that, and uh, and Bart Ehrman and, and his ilk yeah. at Barnes and Noble. It's almost like it's the extremes. I don't know. There, there's a. I was talking about this with someone the other day. It's like there, there's. I don't. I just don't think the information gets disseminated. Uh, oh, I agree. Because it's like yeah, some of these people write very accessibly other some of it's too academic and so you need but other right very accessibly um but they just barnes noble may not carry a lot of baker no. or ivp or something no. so it's just like yeah it's just it's i don't know all the inner workings i don't i've never worked at a bookstore and with distrib- distribution of that i don't know what decides i know the market's part of it somehow but what decides sure i'm what, sure my number my number three was Doug Moo. Doug Moo. Okay. Yes, he's good there too. Go. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. See, I could give you enough time. I knew you'd be able to think of this. So uh, there you go. Uh, I still need a number. <laughs> th- I said Hurtado. I said Witherington. I mean, I have a few. Ian Paul's great. I like Ian Paul. He has helped me in, as a in my preaching. 
and I, hmm. not be biblical scholars. I can, I can say, um, have been that helpful with, with actual preaching and unpacking passages, um, with kind of an audience in mind of like Christians who want to, who may be stumped by something, especially when it comes to like, uh, the surprising things Jesus may say or do. Ian Paul yes. is a great scholar to go to his, um, his blog, um, is great. I'll put a link in the show notes. So, uh, okay, cool. A lot, so yeah. And also Richard Hayes and I'm going number. That's, yes. But yeah, I like him a lot too. His, his yeah. book on, uh, echoes of, of scripture and the gospels and echoes of the scripture and Paul. I've not read the Yes. Book, Good stuff. I, yeah. So those are all kind of my, my favorites, but there you go. All right. Uh, well, thank you, Jay, for being on. It was a pleasure. Oh, thank you. Um, I look forward. I mean, hopefully, I don't know if you you plan to write uh, something else for Living Church or anywhere. <laughs> they just kind of come to me. Just kind of come to you. Yeah. Yeah. Well, blessings uh, on your, you know, study is lifelong. And so, you know, blessings on your continued uh, ministry. Um, thank you very much retirement enjoy yourself you guys are in the trenches i'm not anymore oh yeah you're not <laughs> uh blessings on your uh guitar playing and thank you. so many other things so um all right hey drew again hope you enjoyed that episode and uh, i wanted to add one more thing jay if you're listening sorry i did not bring this up in the episode uh, not only did I visit the grave of one of your favorite music artists, but I also have an interesting experience uh, uh, regarding B.B. King. Back in 2006, I was barely out of high school. My friend and I were just driving around on a weekend night. Nothing really to do, nothing in mind. We were just kind of driving around. This was back when in Saginaw, Michigan, where I grew up. And um, we drove by this... Uh, uh, theater, kind of a single screen, like historic theater in downtown called the Temple Theater, which uh, has concerts, a venue for concerts and, and other things. And um, we drove by and saw in the marquee, B.B. King was live. And I thought, I was like, oh, yeah, I heard B.B. King was was coming here, you know, and, you know, I would, didn't have plans on going to the show or anything, but we just drove by and we just decided um if, you know, if we went in to see if there was any tickets and I don't even know what we were thinking, cause I don't even think we would have had the money for the tickets, but we just went in anyways, just to see like, you know, and, uh, as we were walking in, no lie, my parents, my mom and stepdad were walking out of the theater as we were walking in. I had no idea they were even at the theater or were at that show. Um, they were walking out and, uh, they had just watched the opener. Um, but my stepdad, who's an avid hockey player, why well, he wanted to go play hockey, I guess, over watching BB King to each their own. <laughs> That's all right. Um, and so they, uh, they were like, Hey, you want our tickets? Uh, so, you know, this is a totally, um, happened out of nowhere, it seems. And, um, you know, with, with is, is, is pretty cool that, uh, the way that happened because my friend and I ended up seeing BB King, uh, totally unexpectedly, um, totally total surprise but um it was uh uh really cool our last minute um um opportunity to see bb king and so and it was a good show and i can see why he was a beloved performer and musician for uh his very long career in life uh 
wonderful artist. So it, it was pretty awesome and makes for a great memory. And, um, you know, uh, I'd never thought I'd uh, be able to share it on the podcast, but this, this brings up the opportunity. So, um, that's, uh, that's that. So anyways, uh, thanks for listening again, listeners. And, um, our next episode, Jack Kilcrease, who's been on the podcast, uh, couple times in the past. He'll be returning to talk about Sola Scriptura. God bless.